The Old Testament readings recorded in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, beginning at the first verse. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. O Lord, have mercy on us. The epistle is from the inspired Apostle Paul, chapter 12, beginning at the 12th verse. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. 
and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. O Lord, have mercy on us. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 4, beginning at the 16th verse. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are repressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. 
This is the gospel of the Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our sermon text is the gospel, Luke chapter 4. I'll just reread this part where Jesus took the scroll of Isaiah and read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Thus far, our text. It's kind of an unwritten rule in our church, anyway. It may also be in other Christian churches, but I'm, of course, most familiar with this rule in our church, that you do not send a new seminary candidate from the seminary back to his hometown congregation. I suppose you can probably see many reasons why that would be true. As I told somebody not too long ago, where I served once, were many people who had been there when one of the previous pastors had been there for many years, and every time I visited them in their homes, a lot of times they were shut-ins at that time, they would always mention to me the pastor's three sons. And evidently, pastor did something we probably shouldn't do. He stopped the service one time and stepped down in front of the pew where his boys were sitting and had a word with them. Well, I can assure you or tell you that the members who were there at the time never forgot what pastor did. Of course, maybe they remembered more what the boys were doing than they did what pastor did. But anyway, it's kind of an unwritten rule. You just don't send the young candidate back to his home parish because certainly they're all going to remember things that he did as a boy and those things will come up and they may not listen to him as a pastor speaking God's word. And we can see that this happened even to our Lord, God himself. When he went back to his home congregation in Nazareth, he was not met with a big welcome. And as they first said after his words, they all marveled at what he spoke because he spoke such gracious words. But then somebody mentioned, ah, don't we know this young man? Isn't he Joseph's son? Well, how can he have any words of wisdom for us? We know him as a little boy. We know him growing up, etc. So Jesus went on to confirm that a prophet is not accepted in his hometown, by pointing out a few things to them from the scriptures which did not include Israel. Elijah 
was sent to a Gentile lady. And Elisha sent to, or he wasn't sent, uh, Naaman came down to him, but he was not of immediate Israel. And they became angry to the point that they wanted to kill him. They forced him outside of the synagogue. The Nazareth is built on a cliff, and they were going to throw him off the cliff and kill him. Maddening. Unbelief is maddening. But Jesus, being God Almighty, simply prevented them from doing so and walked away unharmed. Jesus tells us, as he quoted Isaiah, that he has come to preach. He's come to preach the gospel to his people. He's come to bring them comfort. He's come to remove their sins. He's come to assure you of your forgiveness, that he loves you, he has a place prepared for you in heaven, and no matter even how bad you think you are or what you have done in the past, he brings you forgiveness and the certain hope of eternal life. He begins by quoting Isaiah and saying that he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Now, he's not talking about your bank account. He's talking about your heart and your spirit and those who don't think that they are worthy of God's forgiveness, those who are spiritually poor, those who struggle with righteousness and unrighteousness, good and evil, and have a troubled conscience which convicts them of their sins and for some reason cannot seem to be assuaged or calmed down or even put to rest. Jesus says he has come to preach good news to people like this, people whom the law of God has convicted of their sins. When we hear from God that the soul that sins shall surely die, we all ought to shudder in our boots. And then we hear Jesus say, I forgive you. I forgive you. All your sins I have taken into my body. I've paid their debt in full. I have silenced the law so that you can now have a good conscience that speaks to your poor, trembling, contrite heart. That is why he came, to preach good news to us, that we would know for a certain that we have a God who loves us. We have a Savior who has rescued us from this sinful world and will someday gather us into his home in heaven where all of this will be behind us and we will live in happiness eternally. He says that he was sent to preach good news to the poor. 
and to proclaim the release to the captives. In another place, he says that those who sin become slaves to sin. Those who sin, those who live in unbelief, are controlled by Satan. Jesus says, you're either for me or you are against me. There is no middle ground with Christ. Either we love him, we serve him, or else we don't like him. And we reject him and his forgiveness. And if we reject him and his forgiveness, we become captive to our sin, which is ruled by Satan. So Jesus says he has come to proclaim release to us. And we're not captive to Satan. We're not slaves of sin. We're forgiven sinners. Okay, we're still sinners. But we're forgiven. And we wear Christ's righteousness. So as we struggle day in and day out, with our conscience, which Paul says either agrees with us and says, you're okay, or else it accuses us. He has come to assure us and give us a good conscience. As Paul says, we don't live under the law. We're not burdened by the law. Do this, do that, or else you're going to be in big trouble. We don't live under the law. He says we live under grace. We live under God's love and forgiveness. So we do not have to be troubled day in and day out with our sins. And when our conscience tries to convict us of our sins, we can do as Luther says. Say, oh yeah, I know it. Hey, look, Satan, I know it. I'm a poor, miserable sinner. But I have a Savior who forgives me. And I am forgiven. So in baptism, the Lord has set us free from sin, Satan, and damnation. And we are conquerors. We are set free. We are not captives. He's come also to preach to the blind. Of course, he's not speaking physically here. He's speaking spiritually. You know, those who live in unbelief, if you stop and think about it a little bit, they don't know where they've come from. If they don't believe in God as the creator, they have no clue where people come from. They have no clue why they're here. What should they be doing? Should they be doing anything? Do they just eat, drink, and be merry and then die? And they have no clue where they're going. They have no idea what is at the end of life. That is spiritual blindness. And they live in this day in and day out. Having no clue. Why am I here? What am I doing? Where am I going? And you can see the great 
frustration. You can see why people be depressed, discouraged, despondent. Because they are spiritually blind. Jesus says, I have come to give them the recovering of the sight to the blind. Jesus wants you to know. He wants us to know that God the Father created us. Well, so did the Son. The Trinity created us out of love for us. God loves his people. That's why he created us. He created us to have someone to love. And he wants those whom he loves to love him back. And you have purpose in life. Each one of us, God already has a plan for our life before he ever created us. He knows. He has things for you and me to be about. Read uh, Ephesians 2, verse 20. No, 10. Is that right? 2.10. Yeah. Works that I have created and prepared for you to be about. And when you're about these works, it's Christ who lives within you, as Paul says. In Galatians, that's 2.20. The life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He lives within us that we will be about the things he wants us to do. So Jesus is accomplishing his purposes through you, through me, through his church. Recovering of the sight of the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. Oh, the law is so oppressive. It holds us down. It convicts us. It accuses us. It tempts us to do this, to do that, or Satan does, to break the law, and then the law oppresses us. And we're burdened with our sins, and we see no hope at the end of the tunnel here. But Jesus has set us free. He has liberated us. In the water of holy baptism, he takes up residence within us and he overcomes Satan and drives him out and he liberates us and sets us free to be his children and to follow his will and to look forward to the day when we will be with him in eternity, living in great happiness where we do not have to see the results of sin in the world around us. We do not have to hear or fear the killings that go on and wars and rumors of wars and all of the earthly things, earthquakes, tornadoes, flooding, etc. We don't have to fear that anymore as Christ will rescue us from this veil of tears. And then lastly, he came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's the jubilee year, you know, in the Old Testament. Every 50 years, there was a jubilee year when uh, debts were forgiven. And if you happened to be a servant or a slave, you were set free. And the land was not tilled. And there was this great jubilee year which foreshadowed our Lord's coming. 
We are right now living in the Jubilee year. That is when the sins or sin, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed freely. And God wants all the world to know of his son. And Christ is going to be preached day in and day out until the end comes. And forgiveness of sins is available to all who will believe that Jesus is God in our flesh. Come to redeem us from our sins that we might live with him in heaven forever. This is the jubilee year. This is why Christ has come to preach his love and forgiveness for his people. He wants us to know that he loves us, he cares for us, and he wants us to love him and look forward to the day when we will be with him in heaven. That was a little bit of his first sermon when he returned home to Nazareth and said that today in your hearing these words of Isaiah the prophet are fulfilled in me. God's Son, our Savior, who came to preach forgiveness and life and salvation to us and to all the world. Thanks be to God for giving us his Son. Amen. Now may the peace that passeth all understanding keep your hearts and minds through faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.